Super Mario Bros. is easily one of the best known video games in all of video game history. Not only is it one of the best selling video games of all time, number 7th in fact, but it helped popularize that which is probably the single best known character to ever come from a video game, and that's Mario of course. Super Mario Bros. is one of those games that people still play 38 years later, and it's rarely ever talked about as having aged like so many video games after it. Super Mario Bros. is a gem that has withstood the test of time, and for good reason. It is the culmination of years of expertise and technical discovery from a small group of individuals who inevitably made history at Nintendo. Today we're going to tell you the story of Super Mario Bros. As part of that story, we'll revisit the careers of some of its creators, including Shigeru Miyamoto and Takashi Tezuka. We'll look at depth at all the games that brought us the creation of Super Mario Bros. and how they contributed to its success. So stick around and join us as we visit the Mushroom Kingdom on yet another trip down memory card lane. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening. I hope these words find you well. Hello and welcome to the 159th episode of our video game history podcast, A Trip Down Memory Card Lane. Each week, we'll tell you the story about one topic relevant to the current week in gaming history. It can be about a game, a console, a person. It just needs to be something relevant to this week. It can really be whatever I want past that. While telling you these stories, we hope to teach you something new about the topic, what it took from the world as its inspiration, or what it gave back to the world in its legacy. Today, we're finally going to teach you about Super Mario Brothers, the platform video game originally released for the Nintendo Entertainment System in September of 1985. I'm David Casson, and as always, I'm joined by my co-host who has been eating magical mushrooms before he knew it was cool. He's my brother, Rob Casson. Rob. How is life in the Mushroom Kingdom? You know, it's pretty spectacular, but there are these weird creatures coming around that just seem to be causing a ruckus, so luckily we got some plumbers that help us out. That's, yes, yes, plumbers, indeed, they're cool dudes. Yeah, yeah, they are. They don't knock plumbers, man. I... I I do plenty of plumbing myself. I'm not going to knock plumbers. Uh, plumbing plumbing uh, sucks. It doesn't really suck. Actually, I like plumbing because plumbing is really easy. It's straightforward, but that's neither here nor there. So Dangerous words, Dave. What? Pipe goes in, pipe easy. goes out. It's like electricity. Electricity is super cool, too. People are afraid of electricity, but the reality is, is like in, out. Cable in, cable out. Like they're they're just really straightforward things. Now, if you don't know what you're doing, don't touch them. But, you know, pipe in, pipe out. I think it's great. Well, I get that a lot, Dave. Pipe oh, in, pipe shit. Out. Pipe in, pipe out. Yeah, fair enough. OK, moving on. What are you playing? Well, Dave, this week has been some Rocket League, some RuneScape, some Satisfactory, a uh, little bit of Trailmakers, and I believe that's it. So... Quite a bit, a lot, a lot, but a little bit, a lot. Sounds like it. How about yourself? What have you been up to? Rocket League and Starfield. Ooh, how do you like it so far? I think it's a lot of game. 
and I haven't really cracked enough of it open to have an opinion. It feels like a Bethesda game. That's what I'll say. It feels like a Bethesda game in a new universe. It, it They're not reinventing the wheel. I think that's the thing that's not sitting right with me, but I like the universe they've created because I'm a big fan of space, so I'm enjoying that. But they're not reinventing the wheel, and I don't know why that's a negative to me, but right now that's kind of in the just eh, column. Does that make sense? I think it does, yeah. So, but I mean, I don't have a reason not to like it. Like, it's a good game. I'm just, I'm not, and it might have just been the hype. Like, I'm not, I, I, I may be a little underwhelmed by it, maybe, but I'm enjoying myself. So I guess it can't be that bad. So I don't know in hindsight then what the hell I was expecting to be fair, you know? Yeah, I don't know what to tell you, Dave, but hey, you're still playing it, so that's something. Yeah, I was going to say, that's exactly right. We're going we're gonna to keep playing it. So, Super Mario Brothers, I'm not even going to ask if you're familiar with it. I think everybody on the face of the earth is familiar with Super Mario Brothers. I it wouldn't is, go that far. It is, if you have any touch with culture whatsoever, I think that it, it's one of the most recognizable characters in the world. Aside from, I mean, it's up there with like Mickey Mouse, a really genuine past Mickey Mouse now for a younger generation. Nah, I think Mickey, Mickey and the Pokemon are probably probably have more brand recognition, but I don't think Mario is terribly far behind. So. We shall, I guess, who knows? Statisticians, let us know. But Mario is synonymous with his creator, Shigeru Miyamoto. Shigeru Miyamoto is a name that you've heard many times if you listen to our podcast. Some of his notable works include Donkey Kong, The Legend of Zelda. We've covered Super Mario World before. We've covered Star Fox before. These are all games that we've done previous episodes on. So if you're interested in any of them, I would suggest checking out our archives, which of course you can find on our website at www.memorycardlane.com. Each of these are bits and pieces of Miyamoto's career and various divisions of Nintendo that have worked on these games and that he has worked on, some of which is what we're going to talk about today. But as a brief primer, let's talk a little bit about Miyamoto. Uh, After graduating with a degree in industrial design, he was hired into the planning department at Nintendo in 1977. That's where his illustrious Nintendo career started. He's still there, which is really impressive. That means he's, what, four years away from 50 years at Nintendo? Uh, uh, yeah, math probably is right. I don't know. That's pretty I damn mean, close. How many people can say they've spent 50 years with a company? Are he, I mean, he's been there more than 40 years already. How many people can say that, you know? Yeah, that is pretty huge to be able to say. And especially for a company as, as illustrious as the mighty Nintendo. Right. In 1981, he helped design the successful arcade game Donkey Kong. That's where the story starts. Now, we've talked about Donkey Kong before. In fact, I've done an entire episode on it. It's a game that I have credited as likely saving the entire video game industry. Today, we're talking about another game that contributed to saving the video game industry. But as the story goes for Donkey Kong... Nintendo developed an arcade cabinet called Radar Scope in 1980, and it didn't sell very well, so they were left with a ton of unsold cabinets. Uh, Nintendo of America specifically developed Radar Scope and bought a ton. 
and Nintendo of America was going to go bankrupt. You know, this was 1980. We weren't terribly far away from the video game crash, so on and so forth. So it didn't look very good. And they knew they needed, needed to do something with the cabinet. So Nintendo of America went back to you know, Nintendo headquarters. So the president said, hey, which, what, what, what can we do? And so they tasked Miyamoto with converting the cabinets, doing a conversion of the radar scope cabinets into something that would actually sell. And what he came up with was a game that he had hoped to attach to a Popeye the Sailor Man license that Nintendo was trying to acquire. So you've got characters like Popeye and Olive Oil and Brutus, and you know that's kind of where this all started. And then that licensing deal didn't happen. So they had to pivot and turn the game into a concept with original characters. Now, the main character was named Jumpman when it was designed on the Japanese side of things. But when the game was sent to Nintendo of America to test for North American audiences, the name Jumpman wasn't very popular. So they looked to rename the character. And eventually what they settled on was naming it after the landlord of the warehouse they were renting. And of course, that landlord's name was Mario Sagale. And hence we have Mario. Now, Donkey Kong ended up being successful, as we all know. So this led to the creation of two different sequels. There would be Donkey Kong Jr. in 1982 and Donkey Kong 3 in 1983. After that, they recognized that Donkey Kong and all the other characters were in it were popular, and so they looked to create a spin-off series featuring all those other characters. And this would be the first time that we see the Mario Brothers. So the creators of Donkey Kong, Shigeru Miyamoto and Gunpei Yokoi, took Mario and they decided to spin him off into his own game. They started off with a prototype that had Mario jumping and bouncing around and they built it out from there. Because of his appearance in Donkey Kong with overalls, a hat, and a thick mustache, Miyamoto felt that Mario should be a plumber as opposed to a carpenter, which was his original profe suggested profession in Donkey Kong. So as they built the setting for Mario Brothers out, they ended up with a network of giant pipes. So it really felt like it was the occupation that was appropriate for the situation, you know? Yeah, no, it makes perfect sense. Also because of the huge network of pipes that became the the map for Mario Brothers, Miyamoto also felt that New York was the setting for the game because of its well-known sewer system featuring a large labyrinth of subterranean pipes. And they became green while we're on the topic of pipes because of the limited color palette that they had to work with at the time. It was simply a good color that occurred when two shades of green were combined. Nothing fancy with that either. So Mario Brothers was created as an arcade cabinet, and in looking to extend the replayability of said cabinet, they knew that they wanted to create a multiplayer mode. Many, many arcade cabinets at the time were multiplayer. The most popular cabinets were mostly multiplayer, one that they looked to for a lot of inspiration with this concept and the game in general was Joust. I'm a big fan of Joust personally. 
Love my little ostrich eggs. So in order to make a simple multiplayer, they had to make an alternate character. And all they did was take Mario and they swapped his palette to green from red. And that's how Luigi was born. So this arcade cabinet, which is just called Mario Brothers, features Italian twin brother plumbers Mario and Luigi examining strange creatures as they emerge from the sewers by knocking them over and kicking them away. The objective was just to defeat all the enemies to complete the level. Each level has Mario and Luigi, if you're playing two-player, as they face various enemies. There's the sh Shell Creeper, the Sidestepper, the Fight or Flight, and the Slippus. Slip, Slipus? Slipus? Slip Ice, I think. Slip Ice? I think you're right. Slip Ice, yeah. Yep, 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 yep. It's funny because I've played, the, I've played that game so many times. It's been re-released so many times. I've never once thought about the names of these enemies. I honestly haven't either. I was thinking about that, that like... I definitely have played the remake of those in other games because I remember the platforms you had to jump underneath to knock them over. Yep. And yeah, I didn't never would have thought I just, you know, hey, the Koopa, it's a Koopa. That's what I would have thought. Yep. But everything else, they were just freaking enemies, man. Yep. Like you said, you have to jump under the platform to knock the enemies over and then you run over them to kick them away. So in 1983, the Nintendo Famicom came out. That would be the system that came over to the United States as the Nintendo Entertainment System. And so it really made sense for Nintendo to kind of task one of their star developers over to the home console side of the business. You know, the video game industry crashed in 1983. They were on the cusp of that. Everyone knew that the industry was on a downturn. Arcade cabinets were on a downturn. And they were putting all their money in home consoles as the next greatest thing. So, in fact, they eventually created a whole division that was focused on this one goal. And that division is Nintendo Research and Development 4. So, Nintendo used to have one creative division. That's where they started. And eventually they restructured and became three different divisions. R&D 1, R&D 2, and R&D 3. And now here in 1983, they were making the decision to start an R&D 4. Prior to the creation of R&D 4, many of Nintendo's software successes, like Donkey Kong, for instance, uh, were created by R&D 1. This is technically the studio that Sheriff was made, that the Donkey Kongs were are made, as the Nintendo Famicom was becoming a popular platform. Research and Development 1 was still creating its games. The early games that came over to the NES as ports like Mario Brothers, Baseball, Duck Hunt, Hogan's Alley, they were all brought over to the home consoles through R&D 1. But after the success of Donkey Kong, it became clear that there was the potential to start to break up the talent that were all working in R&D 1, that there could be more than one superstar division within Nintendo that could also develop games. Now, not only that, but at the time after R&D 1 had kind of done Donkey Kong and such, they started creating Game & Watch games. And Gunpei Yokoi was over R&D 1, and Game & Watch games kind of led to the creation of the idea of a handheld gaming system, and then R&D 1 became tasked with 
handhelds, which of course the Game Boy came out in 89. So we're kind of getting to that phase, right? So Yamauchi, the, the president of Nintendo at the time, he greenlights a new division, which is R&D 4. And he hires a bunch of people, but among them, as the chief producer, like the main game designer, so to speak, he hires Shigeru Miyamoto into that division. So as this transition was happening, as all these gears are being shifted around in a Nintendo, um, Miyamoto was working on a 1984 maze video game called Devil World. Now, Devil World, I, I a lot of you probably never heard of Devil World. It's a very Pac-Man-esque maze game in which the player controls Tamagon. He's a green dragon who decides to attack the Devil's World, along with a red player 2 version of him. There's the multiplayer. They navigate through a series of mazes patrolled by monsters. They touch crosses to power up, and that allows them to summon the ability to breathe fire and eat the dots in a maze. He referred to, he being Miyamoto, he referred to this game, this style of game, as what he called an athletic game. Now, Devil World was created for the Nintendo Famicom. It was Miyamoto's first console-only game, and to this day, it's still the only game of his that has never been localized to North America. Now, back then, there was a very specific reason for it. In the beginning of all things, Nintendo of America had a policy of not allowing any religious iconography. Uh, Yeah, let's go with that. You couldn't you couldn't use religious icons in games back when uh, due to a longstanding Nintendo of America policy. Of course, we know that back then Nintendo of America had other policies against like sex, drugs, violence. They wanted to be a kid oriented system. So they didn't allow of any of this. And Devil World is very much a like, here's the devil. You touch crosses to get the power to overcome the devil. It's very much a religious game. So it was never brought over back then, and there's been really no reason to bring it over, I guess, because it has still never been localized. So joining joining Miyamoto for Devil's World is a developer named Takashi Tezuka. Now, Tezuka is yet another video game designer, director, and producer for Nintendo. He is the co-designer alongside Miyamoto for some of Nintendo's most uh, recognizable series such as Mario and the Legend of Zelda, which we're getting to. Tezuka was hired into Nintendo, knowing very little about what they were working on and development. He had never even heard of Pac-Man prior to working on Devil's World, and he ended up being hired as an assistant director on a game that was essentially a Pac-Man clone, which is really fascinating. Miyamoto and Tezuka worked really well together. So when Miyamoto was brought into R&D4, when it actually became a division, and he was allowed to hire people to work alongside him, it was a no-brainer for him, and he brought Tezuka over with him. Now, the first title that the division worked on that actually has R&D4 credits in it was Excitebike. Now, Excitebike was R&D 1 and R&D 4. Working alongside Miyamoto was a programmer called Tashihiko Nagako. Right? Nakako? Nakako. Nagako, I would imagine. Nagako. I'm, I, you know, I'm, I am what I am. 
Nagako had worked as a programmer for a company called System Research and Development. Uh, SRD was founded in 1979, and they had been a programming company who, starting with Donkey Kong in 1983, were hired to assist Nintendo with programming their games. In fact, Nagako is credited as a programmer on both Donkey Kong and Donkey Kong Jr. So at one point, you know, research and development one was porting games, but research and development two was also tasked with porting arcade titles over to the NES, and they were working alongside SRD to do that. So Nagako had a reputation already within the Nintendo divisions. So when Miyamoto got wind that SRD and R&D2 were porting arcade titles with Nagako's help, he used that as an in and an excuse to poach Nagako over to R&D4. And the first, like I said, R&D4 is the first actual R&D4 credit on any game. Now, as a side note, the trio of Nagako, Tezuka, and Miyamoto, they were largely called the Holy Trinity at Nintendo in the beginning because they, the three of them created Mario, Zelda, I mean, Excite Bike here. There are other franchises too, but for the sake of not wanting to dive into them, like Nintendo's bread and butter, these three largely did so much of them, okay? In 1984, after Excite Bike, as part of R&D 4, this whole team was tasked with working on a port of a game called Kung Fu Master, a cabinet called Kung Fu Master. They were porting it over to NES. Now, we've talked about Kung Fu Master before. It was created by Takashi Nishiyama, who would later go on to create Street Fighter. This game is a crucial step in Nishiyama's path to creating the Street Fighter franchise. So if you'd like to learn more about that story, we did that in episode 102. You can check that out in the archives on our website, which of course is www.memorycardlane.com. What's important about these three titles, Devil World, Excite Bike, and Kung Fu Master, is that they were all essential parts of the journey towards creating Super Mario Brothers. In the beginning, Miyamoto had been making what he called athletic games on a single screen with a black background. But as they gained technical expertise, he began to think bigger. He began to envision an expansive side-scrolling platformer. While working on Excite Bite and Kung Fu, he came up with the concept of a platformer that would have the player strategize while scrolling sideways over long distances. It would have above ground and below ground levels, and it would have colorful backgrounds rather than the black backgrounds that pretty much all the games they had worked on up until that point had. In fact, these games would very much become part of what would eventually become Super Mario Brothers. The basis, the very start of their process was the fast scrolling game engine that they had already used to develop Excite Bike. This game engine allowed Mario to smoothly accelerate from a walk to a run, as opposed to all the games they had made before that, because those all had him, the, the character, moving at a constant speed. 
So think about that for a second. Mm. The motorcycles, an excite bike, the yeah, acceleration, accelerate. the braking, that is literally the basis for Mario's movement. Okay. And I can see that because you get the uh the, the P or P gauge or whatever it is to mm-hmm. to run. It's a sprint. Huh. They, That's pretty cool. It is pretty cool, actually. The team was tasked with having a new game available for the end of the year shopping season. So they knew they wanted to make a simple game. They started out with wanting to make a platformer using the Excite Bike engine. They had designed a prototype in which the player moved a 16 by 32 pixel square around a single screen that could move around the way they wanted it to. And it was actually Tezuka that suggested using Mario as the main character after he had looked over some of the sales figures of the Mario Brothers arcade cabinet and port. Now, there's just so much to touch on with Super Mario Brothers that we could be here literally all day. We really don't have that much time, though. We try to keep these episodes as close to an hour as possible. So let's kind of pick through some of the highlights. And if there's something that you know that I'm missing, I'm sorry. I try to do the best I could. You know, we just pick and choose. What's important to know is that Super Mario Brothers is an early example of specialization in the video game industry. Prior to this, for the most part, the development teams were small. Like, we've covered so many earlier games that were written by only one or two people. Atari games were, by and large, programmed, programmed by single people, you know? Right. And then even as the teams got larger, everyone just kind of contributed to just about everything. Everything, everyone was a jack of all trades. But in Super Mario Brothers, which now, I mean, part of the reason why we know this is because it is such a recognizable game. It has been studied so extensively. The people who made it are still very active in the video game industry. We know more about its development process than most other games at this time. So we know it to be an example of how game development more or less works today. Miyamoto designed a game world, and then he led a team of programmers and artists who made it a reality. They turned his vision into code, into sprites, into music, and into the sound effects that would all eventually make up the Super Mario Brothers game. And as more people... As more people, I I agree. Wow. I mean, if you think about it, it's kind of crazy that, you know, there are other examples of it. Like, we can look at Pac-Man 2 that something similar happened. You know, we, we covered that in a previous episode, too. But it's really obvious here. As other people on the team were brought together, they brought with them their resources and the experience that they had gained up until this point. And that's pretty obvious. In Super Mario Brothers, we see the slopes, the lifts, the conveyor belts, and the ladders that were first found in Donkey Kong. We can see the ropes, the logs, and the springs that were found in Donkey Kong Jr., And we can find the enemy attacks, the enemy movement, the frozen platforms, and the POW blocks that were found in the Mario Brothers arcade cabinet. So they brought all these pieces together to make one game with the Excite Byte engine. And then the team expanded upon that, right? 
They initially designed a game around a small Mario. They wanted to make it small and had all intentions of making him bigger in the final version of the game. And then someone made the suggestion that it would be fun to let Mario change his size via a power-up. And this led to the creation of the mushroom power-up. The idea of using a mushroom to change size was influenced by Japanese folktales in which people wander into forests and eat magical mushrooms. And eventually this concept grew and evolved into the whole game being set in what was called the Mushroom Kingdom. And the whole design, I mean, you run across giant mushrooms. That that one idea evolved into like mushrooms becoming the thing, which is kind of cool. Yeah, it definitely is. The mushroom is front and center in the very beginning of the game as it pops out of pretty much the first block you come across. You know, during this generation of consoles, tutorials and gameplay were incredibly rare. So the development team actually designed the opening level, level 1-1 of the game, to act as a tutorial without making it blatantly obvious that it was a tutorial. The opening section of Super Mario Brothers is specifically designed in such a way that players would be forced to explore the mechanics of the game in their entirety in order to be able to advance to a different level. So the design theory, according to Miyamoto, was that rather than having your players confront this new game with obstacles, they laid the variety of in-game hazard down and the player would learn to surpass it using repetition, iteration, and escalation. In an interview with Eurogamer, he would later explain that he created World 1-1 to contain everything a player needs to gradually and naturally understand what they're doing so they can quickly understand how the game works. According to Miyamoto, once the player understands the mechanics of a game, the player will be able to play more freely and then it becomes their game. So that's Miyamoto's stance. There are designers that believe that a player plays in their world. Miyamoto is of the opposite, that once a player takes hold of the game, it becomes their game and their experience. In the case of the mushroom, this early level design was focused on teaching mushrooms, that teaching players rather, that mushrooms were distinct from Goombas, and that they would be beneficial to them. So as it pertains to the first mushroom, it's almost impossible. Hmm. Not It's not, but it's almost impossible to avoid that mushroom once you release it. Oh, I think it's easy as hell, man. The number of times I've missed it. <laughs> and of course, these new team members, they brought with them so many other cool tips and tricks that make Mario Bros. special. I, I don't even know. I mean, I like oh, it could be here forever. You know, Super Mario Bros. was developed with a cartridge that had 32 kilobits of program code and only 64 kilobits of sprite and background graphics in layman's terms. That's not a lot in any way, shape or form. I mean, your microwave probably has more storage nowadays. It's true. Yeah. Yeah, I know. It's what I, I know. It's true. Just funny to think that you could definitely run this game on a microwave. I mean, you freaking the frickin there. There's probably a single button in your car that has more storage in it. And it doesn't do anything that turns something on and off, probably, you know, I wouldn't doubt it, man. It's a crazy different world. 
So due to the storage limitation, the designers had to really aggressively search for opportunities to save space as they designed to they designed the game. It kind of became a competition between developers. So for instance, the clouds and the bushes in the game's background are the same sprite, just recolored. And the background tiles in the game are generated by a, an automatic algorithm. They're not pre-made. Sound effects were also recycled. The sound when Mario is damaged is the same sound as when he enters a pipe. And Mario jumping on an enemy is the same sound as each stroke he makes when swimming. Things that you probably don't even pay attention to in hindsight, you know? Yeah, that's definitely true. And then after completing the game, after finishing everything, the development team decided that they should introduce players with a really simple, easy-to-defeat enemy rather than beginning the game with Koopa Troopas. By this point, the team had nearly run out of memory, so they designed Goombas by making a single static image and flipping it back and forth to save space while creating a convincing character animation. So Goombas don't technically even move. It's just a static image that gets flipped on a mirror to make it look like they're moving. Wow. Interesting to know. And that's like the icon, right? Like you start the game and, you know, here we're thinking the turtles are the deal, but the turtles weren't the deal. You know, they, they finished the whole game and they're like, hey, we, we want a, a, a newer, an easier enemy. And then they just they came up with with Goombas and then they came up with a really smart way to do it with no memory. That is a really smart way. And then, of course, after the addition of the game's music, around 20 bytes of open cartridge space remained. So they used the remaining space to add a crown into the game. And that appears in the player's life counter as a reward for obtaining at least 10 lives. Had never known that. It's just cra it's, it's crazy the things that you don't think of. I'm just saying I never knew that there was freaking no way a crown for 10 lives. You can't yeah. have never made it that high. <laughs> Funny. Shit, I thought you could only lose lives. You can gain lives in that game. And I think that we would be remiss if we didn't at least talk about the music. This is one of the pivotal, pivotal moments for video game music. The theme song for Super Mario was created by Koji Kondo. He wrote a six-track score for Super Mario Brothers and created the game sound effects in their entirety. When he was composing, video game music was mostly meant to not attract attention. It was just supposed to be in the background, wasn't meant to enhance, wasn't meant to conform to a game. It was just it just existed alongside the game, right? Right. So re realistically, Kondo's work on Super Mario Brothers was one of the single most important moments. It was one of the major forces that started to shift the idea of music just existing alongside games to becoming integral parts of video games. He had two specific goals for his music. He wanted to convey an ambiguous sonic image of the game world 
and to enhance the emotional and physical experience of the gamer. Shithead. The music of Super Mario, in case you didn't know, is coordinated with the on-screen animations of the various sprites, which is just one way that Kondo created a sense of immersion. He's not the first to do it in a video game. You know, Space Invaders kind of did that as the aliens get closer. The You know, they speed up the music. It's more. But, like, Kondo was part of the development team. You know, he worked with the programmers and designers from the beginning of production to learn the game himself and create the sound, the game soundtrack. And, and as he did it, he ended up just like revolutionizing video game music. I mean, this is the, this is one of the earliest and most recognizable video game themes. It probably is the most recognizable video, video game theme, you know, I would definitely argue that it is. Yeah. So, yeah, so a lot of people went and they worked on Super Mario Brothers and. You know, Miyamoto had really wanted to create this game as as he called it, the final exclamation point for the cartridge format, because they made this about when they were, you know, as they were getting ready to release the Famicom disk system. Uh, while they were making, as a fun side note, while they were making Super Mario Brothers, they were also making The Legend of Zelda. Uh, so they were made in tandem with one another. And that was another game directed and designed by Miyamoto. It was released five months after Mario, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, and as a further little trivia note, in case you didn't know, the games do share some elements. So for instance, the fire bars that appear in Mario's castle levels are objects that like fire objects in Zelda too. Huh. Neat. More th- yeah. More things that you really wouldn't pay attention to, but yeah, that's their, that's, that's it. That's their final estimation point. They put their nose to the grind, got it done. And in September of 1985, we got super Mario brothers. And you know, Rob, as a content creator, it's, really easy to understand the desire to create your own exclamation point on any creative endeavor, you know? That's right, Dave. We work hard every single week to give you the wow factor when you listen to our stories about your favorite consoles and video games. And we wouldn't be able to do it without Zencaster. So are you listeners looking for the right tools to start your own podcast? Or are you a podcaster yourself that's just tired of dealing with unreliable recording tools that leave you frustrated and stressed? Well, listen up. Because we've got a game changer for you. That's right. Zencaster is the dream solution for podcasters who want high quality audio without the hassle. Whether you're recording solo or with guests, Zencaster ensures a seamless recording experience. And it's super simple for guests to join you. You can send your guests a link and they can join the recording session using just their web browser. There's no need for them to download anything. No fancy software to have to install. The platform records each participant locally on their device. So you get crystal clear sound no matter where your guests are located. That's recorded safely and easily. And you don't need to be a tech genius to use Zencaster. It's incredibly user friendly with intuitive controls to make recording and editing a breeze. With studio grade post-production tools, you can edit your podcast right within the platform. It's like having a professional sound engineer at your fingertips. And the best part is Zencaster automatically does all of this in the cloud. So when you originally record your 
your your sessions it records them locally but then once it's done it uploads in the cloud and when you do all your post-production it takes those same recordings and it does the post-production work in the cloud and makes it available all i have to do is click a button that says produce and i can walk away and when my post-production is complete i actually get an email that says your post-production is complete so i don't even have to sit at my computer and pay attention while it does whatever it needs to do it is all done in the cloud all super easy i love using zencaster because it streamlines my workflow and it helps me produce top-notch audio quality. That's right, Dave. And our listeners have noticed the difference, too. For sure. We've received so many compliments on the clarity of our episodes since we switched to Zencaster. So, if you're serious about taking your podcast to the next level, it's time to give Zencaster a try. And do we have a special offer for you. For all of our listeners, if you head on over to Zencaster.com forward slash pricing and use the offer code memory card lane, you can get 30% off of your first month of any Zencaster podcasting plan. That's Z-E-N-C-A-S-T-R.com forward slash pricing and use our code memory card lane for 30% off your first month. And you'll be creating your own exclamation points in no time or maybe question marks. But speaking of question marks, Rob, the question block from Mario is one of the most recognizable things from this video game. And Mario and Luigi and Bowser and the princess. It is so hard to understate the cultural significance of this game. And that's very much in part because of its popularity, because of the progress that this series has made as it has continued over the years. Of course, this Super Mario Brothers series, we got Super Mario Brothers 2 a few years later, which is a... I mean, everyone kind of feels like Super Mario Brothers 2 is weird. It deserves its own episode in itself, so we can kind of talk about why it's different, but we have that. There was another sequel called Super also called Super Mario Brothers 2. This one ended up to us being called Super Mario Brothers The Lost Levels. Uh, we got that stateside in 1993 as The Lost Levels, but they got it in 80... I don't know, 86, somewhere in there. Also had Super Mario Brothers 3 for Nintendo. Probably one of the greatest NES games like on record. Have, did you ever play Mario Brothers 3? I definitely did, Dave. Yeah. I mean, that is... That is easily one of the greatest games of all time. It's like the third best selling NES game behind Mario Brothers itself and Duck Hunt. And in the interest of fairness, both Super Mario Brothers and Duck Hunt came with systems. Super Mario Brothers had the a three year head start, you know, and Duck Hunt had a four year. No, actually four and yeah, four year head start, four and five year head start. So. Um, and Super Mario Bros. 3 came in just behind them for, for which call it sold. We progressed past Super Mario Bros. 3 into the NES, Air, SS, NES era Super Nintendo Entertainment System with Super Mario World, which of course we've done an episode on. That is one of my favorite games of all time because of, I don't know, nostalgia. <laughs> 
I already covered that. We did a whole episode on it. I would suggest checking it out. Super Mario World is nothing short of amazing. When the series transitioned over to the 64 bit realm and 3D polygrams, we got Super Mario Bros. 64, another one of the greatest games ever made. Notice a pattern here. Yeah, and I mean, yeah. after that, there was Sunshine and... Yep. I mean, Super Mario Brothers 64 is... It revolutionized this genre all over again. You know, if if Super Mario Brothers here kind of created the platforming genre, and it didn't, like Donkey Kong did, but, you know, we revolutionized it once here with Super Mario Brothers, and we revolutionized it all over again when we went to 3D with Super Mario 64. That's one of the like. It's just a fantastic game. Agreed. And like. In a more modern notion. I mean, what do we have now? Super Mario Maker, where now we can create like our own Mario levels based on the style of Super Mario. Right. Mm, yep. Definitely. Have, you pl- have you played either of those? I didn't play the first one, but I do have the second and I have yeah. played it. My same. levels are not anything difficult, but <laughs> yeah, same, 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 same. So, I mean, Mario was just an icon, you know, in 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 what 1990, there was a study in North America that suggested that more children were familiar with Mario than Mickey Mouse. I wonder if that's still the case today. Who knows? Mm. You looking it up? No, but that's just curious that I uh, would have thought that. I don't know. Hmm. Disney's taken over a lot of stuff in this world now that I think about it. So maybe back in the day, it was more feasible for Mario to be bigger. But who knows nowadays? Yeah. People love Mario. People love Mario. You know, going back to this early game, mint sealed boxes of this game are considered collector's items nowadays i've tripped on that the other day in 2019 a near mint sealed box version of the game was sold for just over a hundred thousand dollars jesus in 2020 another near mint sealed box copies uh from the period when nintendo was transitioning from sticker seals to shrink wrap sold for one hundred and fourteen thousand which was at the time wow. the highest price that was the highest price ever for a video game at the time. And it's still it's not now. No, no, Holy we've got we've gone we've gone way past that now. So God damn. there are so many games that cite Mario Brothers as inspiration. You know, we've talked about Sonic the Hedgehog before Sonic the Hedgehog was a very large inspiration that game, and we did a whole episode on this where we covered this, but that game derived because the creator was playing Mario Brothers and trying to beat its first level as quickly as possible. And he conceived the idea for a platformer that was based on the concept of moving as fast as possible. Hey, Rob, speaking of moving as fast as possible, can you look up the current record for speedrunning the first Mario? I sure can, Dave. And then, of course, while Rob does that, Mario Brothers has just inspired countless fan games. In 2009, there was a developer uh, that released Super Tario Tros. It combined Mario with Tetris. Super Mario Brothers Crossover is a PC fan game that was released in 2010 as a browser-based game. 
It's a full recreation of Super Mario Brothers that allows the players to control other characters from Nintendo games like Mega Man, Link, Samus Saran, and Simon Belmont. There is a Portal Mario knockoff called Mario. And the O, it looks like brackets. It came in 2012. It combines elements of... It basically gives Mario a portal-making gun to teleport through the level. And then there's also a game called Full Screen Mario that adds a level editor. So there are tons and tons and tons of just fan knockoffs. So what'd you find about speedrunning? Well, are we looking at the any percent or the warp list? Let's start with the any percent. So any percent implies that you can use the warp trip, the warp trick in the game to get through it. So if you warp, how fast can you get? Has someone ever gotten through Mario? Well, Dave. Three days ago. No way. Yes, sir. They the broke it three days ago. Set okay. at four minutes, 54 seconds and 631 milliseconds, which was only 233 milliseconds faster than the previous record set four months ago. It's crazy to think that this game that like, I mean, I was probably first, you know, it, it, it came out just before I was born realistically and no just after 1985 right yeah just after it's hard to believe that this game and i probably would have been four or five when i was first introduced to it so this is easily among my earliest gaming memories right i couldn't beat it i played it over and over and over and i couldn't beat it and now there are people that like beat it a gajillion times in a day there are people that have beat it more times in an hour than i've ever beat it in my entire life and they're now doing it in under five minutes yeah it's it's pretty insane and that you know that is doing the warp phases but even if you're not dave a month ago the same person who just set the only the any percent just over a month ago hit the warpless at 18 minutes and 54 seconds, 864 so, milliseconds. So about 19 minutes to do it without any warps. So that's playing every single level in the game. You can beat it in less than 20 minutes. Huh? So do you know why the game is so popular with speedrunners? Uh, you know, I'm really not sure myself. I've definitely watched speedruns of the game, but... Why it's so popular, it's not anything that I really know. Is there a specific reason that you're aware of? Yes, there's two reasons. One, it's very consistent. Okay, there's a lot of games that then they were programmed. Like, for instance, there is a theory that because of the way Punch-Out is programmed, which is another fan favorite speedrunner, because of the way Punch-Out is programmed, they will never beat its current record. Because there, ha- there is a, I don't know if it's a programming glitch or the way it's programmed, but there is such an inconsistency in the last battle against Mike Tyson or Mr. Dream that even the like algorithms, the game playing algorithms can't consistently solve it to ever beat the current world record. Mario Brothers, on the other hand, is very consistent and the controls are considered to be super tight and precise. And because of that, it 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 is a game and a speed run that is pure skill. 
Like, there is no excuse. You can't blame the game. You can't blame the programming. Like, it comes down to purely the skill of the speedrunner, and that makes it one of the most popular speedrunning games of all time. Which is just a testament to how excellent of a game this was when they wrote it. I mean, we're coming up on 40 years ago, you know? 40 years ago, and people are still setting the world records days ago. Days ago, three days ago, almost 40-year-old game, they're still breaking world records and how fast they can play it. Insane. I know. It's really, really crazy. It's really, really crazy. So, the Super Mario Brothers series, kind of winding down on this topic, it has inspired various media products. You know, I... Back in uh, 1985, there was a book called Super Mario Brothers Complete Strategy Guide. I remember this because it was brought over to brought over to states and and shoved into Nintendo Power magazines as a bunch of articles called How to Win at Super Mario Brothers. And I I remember having those Nintendo Power magazines and and learning how to play Mario through them. They made And I'm only bringing this up because we recently got a Super Mario Brothers movie, but you need to know that there were ones before then. There was an anime film in 1986 called Super Mario Brothers, the great mission to rescue Princess Peach. It's pretty much like the first full feature length film to be directly based off a video game. In 1989 to 1990, there was an American animated television series called the Super Mario Brothers Super Show. I have that whole series on DVD. Not even going to pretend I don't. Is that one as cringe as I remember it? Is that the one I'm thinking of? It's yeah, it's got Lou Albano as Mario and Danny Wells as Luigi. It's it's pretty. It's I mean, I liked it. It was campy. I mean, but it was like Saturday morning cartoons. We had a we had a Mario one. We had a Zelda one. We had a, a Captain N one like we had all these Nintendo based Saturday morning cartoons and Captain what now Dave and like Nintendo Captain N mm. we had all these super cool um, Nintendo cartoons and if you were a video game fan I mean you just lived and loved for lived and loved for it so fair enough and then of course we have that that should not be named they made a live action Super Mario Brothers film in 1993. It's pretty infamous as being awful. It's also the reason why it took almost 30 years for Nintendo. It did literally take 30 years because we didn't get one until 2023. It literally took 30 years for Nintendo to want to make another Super Mario Brothers film because the 1993 one was so famously disastrously bad. It is awful. If you've never seen it, you should watch it, but it is, it's just awful. But yeah, watch it. But, you know, it'll suck. It's so bad. It's so bad. But, you know, there's there's we watch bad movies. People still watch bad movies, you know, mystery science theater concept for a reason. I know. And then, of course, we got we got one this year, the Super Mario Brothers movie, which came out this year. You know, it's got Jack Black and Chris Pratt and the Charlie Day Peaches. Then the famous song Peaches. And honestly, I didn't I didn't hate it. I I, I mean, it. I, didn't oh, hate it. I I really I definitely enjoyed it. I think it has a fantastic soundtrack and they they did a good job on the animation. So I, I, I thoroughly enjoyed it. Yeah, I like it. I like it. I, it. It's not like 
It's not something you're going to go go and have your mind blown like it's like the greatest movie of all time. But for what it is, a really enjoyable movie based on a video game franchise, I think they nailed it. So I genuinely enjoyed it. But yeah, that's Super Mario Brothers, man. That's that's a lot of hopefully new things that you learned about the game. I mean, there are a lot of other games in the Super Mario series that I hope to talk about in time. You know, of course, we've we've done an episode on Super Mario World before. We've done episodes on so many other games that were part of the story, like Kung Fu Master and Street Fighter and, you know, Miyamoto's Donkey Kong Kong and Miyamoto's early games like Sheriff. And, you know, these are all this. This is part of a much, much, much bigger story. I would encourage you to go and check out the old episodes that have all the bits and pieces of the story we've been working our way towards this for the better part of three years now. And here we are. And of course, if you want to check out all of these old episodes, you can do so by going to our website at www.memorycardlane.com. Rob, what else can people find on our website? Well, Dave, people can find a calendar of our upcoming episodes. Maybe give us some knowledge that you have, or just some little facts that you like to share about certain games. We are going to be talking about in future episodes. You can find links to things such as our Discord server where you can come hang out with Dave and I, tell Dave how wrong he is, play some games with us. You can find links to things such as our Patreon where for the low price of a dollar you can support us, your favorite podcasters, and get episodes that are ad-free and also without the editing for those that like to hear how crappy it is on the front end. Ha 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 ha. Um, before all of that Zencaster stuff. And then you can also find links to things such as our social media. I can be found on several platforms as Rob underscore O underscore Raptor and Dave. I can be found on various platforms as David underscore is underscore wrong. Each week, we like to tell you a story about one topic relevant to the current week in gaming history. While doing so, we hope to teach you something new about the topic what it took from the world as its inspiration, or what it gave back to the world in its legacy. While we do our research for these topics, we inevitably learn things, and in learning things, we get to teach them to you. It's this really beautiful cycle of teaching and learning, learning and teaching, and in recognition of our overall goal of teaching and learning, we like to go roundtable and talk about our biggest takeaways each week. So, Rob, what did you learn today? Well, Dave... I feel that my favorite little tidbit of information from all of this, well, there's two that I'm pretty torn between. It's that Sakaza, one of the big names in Nintendo, came in without knowing even Pac-Man. And then just took from there and blew the industry away. The other, though, I would have to say is that I, I... think it's hilarious that mario was almost a carpenter he almost was a carpenter he was a carpenter in fact for a while but messing with that damn monkey and all those barrels he just he he decided that carpentry wasn't for him yeah he'd rather deal with what's in the sewer than what's on the buildings so that's right that's right yeah 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 it was a shitty job so why not literally work with shit and work when in the pipes all day Exactly. But hey, when you got your brother, apparently it ain't so bad. Oh, that's the way that we're going to turn this into a, a brotherly love story. Hell no, we ain't, Dave. No, we ain't. But no, we ain't. Of brothers, what is your big takeaway from this week's knowledge dump? 
I completely forgot, or maybe I never knew that Mario was based on Excite Bike. I don't know if I've ever delved into this enough to have known that, like thinking back, but the fact that that engine is where they started. And that's where you get like Mario's iconic, like speeding up and slowing down. I think it's really fascinating, to be honest with you, that Mario is kind of like a, the motorcycle from Excite Bike. Yeah, I didn't really know that either. And like, as soon as you said it, it's like, oh, shit, that makes perfect sense. But like, you don't think about it. No, you don't so. think about it. But that's the cool part about it is that you don't think about it. So. Awesome. Definitely cool facts about this one. So iconic game if by some miracle you've never played it find a damn way to because it is worth it oh and there's so many ways to play it they've re-released this game so many times if you have a switch right now and you're part of the nintendo online like you get a subscription you can play it on nintendo online it's part of the nintendo classic console it's been part of numerous re-releases for the nintendo i mean literally every system every system they found a way to re-release this game uh, every Nintendo system, rather. You know what I mean? I don't even need to name them because there should be no. <laughs> I mean, you should just be able to go anywhere and find a way to play Super Mario Brothers. So. Cool. Indeed, Dave. All right, Rob. Well, that'll about sum it up for Mar Super Mario Brothers. So before I look ahead to next week, is there anything that you'd like to add to today's episode? Well, Dave, as always, I do want to take one quick moment to say thank you so much to all of our listeners means the world to us that you like to listen to us and we hope that you enjoy these random knowledge dumps of your some of your favorite video games so thanks for listening awesome i agree and on that that note next week we're going to look at one of the video games that helped popularize the cd-rom drive in computers of course some episodes along along ago in the same time period we covered the seventh guest which was one of the other games to help popularize the cd-rom drive this is this is this game and the seventh guest were kind of the two that made people want CD-ROM drives and computers. This title that we're looking at next week spawned its own franchise, its own. It pretty much recreated a whole genre of video games. So it was released in 1993. It's a graphic adventure game named Mist, which was originally released only for the Macintosh. It's widely considered one of the best video games ever made. And as a fun fact that you might not know, it was the best selling PC game for almost 10 years. But it has largely fallen out, I think, of cultural cultural relevance. So you might not know much about it because of that. We're going to tell you its story. We're going to change that. We're going to teach you all about Mist, Mist next week. So go ahead and join us. Same time, same place as we travel the ages on yet another trip down memory card lane. Do the thing. Scooby-Doo, dop, 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 doo-doo, dop.